we're going to be looking at this evening. Uh, we're going to go back to where we left off last week. Last week we looked primarily just at one verse, verse number four. And we talked about um, these Galatian believers. Paul told them about the, uh, the problem with perfectionism. And, and we said last week, if you remember, that they were in the prison of perfectionism. Um, and so uh, that's a danger for them, but that is also a great danger for us. Now, really what Paul was doing was making the argument to these Galatian believers and to you and I through the living word of God that we would never, they would never make themselves and we will never make ourselves right with God through being perfect in keeping the law. Let me ask you, why is that? Why is it we'll never make ourselves right with God through perfection in the law? Because we can't be perfect because none of us are perfect. No matter how hard we try, we're going to fall and we're going to fail. Let me tell you why. Because we came here sinners. We came here born into sin, according to Romans 5 and 12. As by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sin. One man, Adam in the garden, sinned. And that sin was passed down generation to generation to generation all the way down to you and me, down to the newest baby that's just been born in this last second, wherever it was in the world. That baby was born of the seed of man. Therefore, he or she was born into sin, just like we were. We were all born with a sinful nature. How many of you know you don't have to do one thing to be a sinner? You came here a sinner. All of us did. We came here needing a Savior. And so we're never going to be perfect in keeping the law. And the truth is, perfection is what God requires if we're going to be justified in His sight. That puts all of us in a terrible position. Because none of us can be perfect. See, the truth is, it's not that something's wrong with the law. How do you know there's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments? Not one thing. It's perfect and it's holy and it's righteous and it's just. No doubt about that. There's nothing wrong with God's law, but the law shows us that there's definitely something wrong with us. God's law is righteous, holy, and perfect, and we are not. We cannot keep it. And so that's really the whole message that Paul is trying to get them to see. He's trying to get them to see how silly it is for them to think they can be made perfect through the flesh. And it's silly for us to think that as well. We need to realize we all need God's grace. We all need a Savior. That's why God sent His one and only perfect Son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Our very nature has to be changed if we're going to be made right with God. And the only way our nature can be changed, folks, is through the new birth. Amen? It's through the new birth. It's through trusting in Jesus as your personal Savior, being born again in the family of God. We don't receive a new nature by keeping the law. We receive a new nature by trusting in Jesus and being born again into the family. That's what Paul is ultimately trying to show them, and that's certainly what the living Word of God is showing us. So, Last week when we left our service, somebody asked me a very important question. And I want to deal with it because I don't want any misunderstanding. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Somebody asked me, they said, brothers, does that mean we shouldn't try hard? I mean, if, if perfectionism is a prison that we sometimes find ourselves in, then should we not try and be perfect? Should we not try hard to be what 
God wants us to be. Folks, don't misunderstand me. We should be excellent in everything we do. We should strive for excellence in everything we do. Listen, in what God has called me to be and do, I want to be excellent at it. I want to do it in excellence. Let me tell you why. Because I'm doing it for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Can you say amen? God, by His grace, has called me to be a pastor. I want to preach the Word of God in excellence. I don't don't want to half do this thing. I I don't want to go halfway. I want to go all the way. I want God to work on me, work in me, and work through me. I don't want to preach the Word of God, not in my power, but in His. I want to do it well. Now, I know I've got a long way to go. I've got growing room. There's no doubt about it, but I'm thankful that Philippians 1.6 says that I am confident that he who begun the good work in me will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. That work he began, praise the Lord, he will continue. And so I want to do what God has called me to do in excellence. If you're preaching the sermon, listen, do it by the power of God in excellence. If you're teaching the Sunday school class, do it in the power of God in excellence. If you're singing the song, do it in the power of God in excellence. Because the only way we're going to do it in excellence is if we do it by the power of God. Are you getting me? So whatever we do for the kingdom of God, we want to do it in excellence. Or with excellence. We want to do it the best we can possibly do it. For we are doing it for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Can you say amen to that? So whatever God puts, on, puts in your hands to do, do it with excellence. Try your very best in your power and certainly in His power. Listen to me. You do your part. You be faithful and I promise God will do His part. God, the Holy Spirit, by His power, will work on you, work in you, and work through you to accomplish His good will and purpose in your life. That, that's, what we're, that's what we're striving for. So, and, but now listen to me. That's not just the work in the church. Sometimes we want to separate our Christian life from church life and our regular life. Well, guess what? Eternal life, the Christian life, it's not separated. We don't put on our church clothes on Sunday and Wednesday and go do the church thing and then take off Jesus on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, and Tuesday and do our own thing. It's not that we separate the spiritual life from the secular life. Listen, it should all be done for the honor and glory of God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I want to be the best husband and father I can possibly be. Let me tell you why. First and foremost, because I know that's pleasing unto the Lord. The Bible tells me in Ephesians 5, 25 that I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's what God wants. I want to please Him first and foremost. The Bible tells me in Ephesians chapter 6 that I'm to bring my children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so God is telling me to do that. I know that's what pleases Him. I want to do it for Him first and foremost. But let me tell you something else. Not only do I want to do it because that's what God wants, but it's what my wife needs. It's what my children need. Amen? So I want to do that for God's honor and glory, and I want to do it also because that's what my family needs each and every day. I want you to know that that don't just go for our home and our church, but also our workplace. You know what the Apostle Paul said? He said that whatever the Lord puts in our hands, let's do it as we're doing it under the Lord in excellence. Folks, I... I put up signs for the state of Alabama. That's pretty much what I do day by day in Marion and Winston County. 
Maintain signs, inventory signs, put up signs, 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 everywhere there's signs. That's all I do. Been doing it for a while now. I'm about done with signs. I'll just be honest. It's, but, but that's what I do. And, but guess what? Now listen to me. Whatever I do, I want to make sure I do it in excellence because I realize ultimately I'm doing it for the Lord. Even at my workplace. You want me to tell you what that means? I want to be the best sign man in the state of Alabama. Why? Because ultimately in my life that he's given me, I'm doing it for him if he's the Lord of my life. Does that make sense to you? Whatever God puts in your hands, do it as unto the Lord. Man, if you're fixing uh, vehicles, do it as you're doing it unto the Lord. Brother, if you're managing a, your store, do it as you do it unto the Lord. Hey, if you're a police officer, do it like you do it under the Lord. Whatever you do, wherever you are, do it as you're doing it under the Lord. It makes all the difference. I'll never forget, we was having a, the Lord opened a door for us to do a Bible study at our workplace uh, years ago. We actually went through the kingdom man study with the guys at our workplace, man. Had a fantastic time with that. The Lord really blessed in that. But I think I made my boss mad one morning because that's what I told him. I said, ultimately, I, I don't do what I do for you. Do you know that? Yeah, I, I want to do what he tells me because that's part of my job. But ultimately, I'm not doing what I'm doing for man. As a man pleaser, we do what we do as unto the Lord. Everything we do, let's do it with excellence. Yeah, we should try hard. Not because it brings us salvation, but because we are saved. Because I am a child of God, because I have been born again by grace through faith, because I have been given this gift of eternal life, because I do have a friend that sticks closer than a brother, because I do know Jesus who loves me like no other. I'm going to do everything I can as well as I can do it because I know ultimately I'm doing it for him. He's Lord. Can you say amen? I want to please him in all we do, and we all should do that. Hey, listen, wherever you find yourself, whatever the Lord puts in your hands, do it as unto the Lord. I'm just telling you, us being perfect will never make us right with God because none of us will be perfect. And that's what Paul is saying to them. How can you say you can be made perfect through the flesh? Verse number four. They couldn't, and we can't either. We've got to realize that. It takes the grace of God. It takes faith in Jesus. That's what makes all the difference. Now, Tonight, let's go more in depth with this thing. And we're going to be looking throughout chapters 3 and 4 where Paul is defending his belief that salvation is by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, as we've said before. That's what he's continually going over in this. And what he does, he uses six different arguments to make his point. I, what I love about the Apostle Paul, and I've, I've told you this many times as we studied his writings, I'm telling you something, Perry Mason ain't got nothing on Paul. Uh, Matlock, he ain't got nothing on Paul. I don't know who your favorite television lawyer is. Maybe Alexander Shinara. He ain't got nothing on Paul. He, re he really don't. I'm telling you, this brother right here can lay out his case and give his argument so logically and plainly that nobody can deny what he's saying is the truth. He's no stranger to debate. Remember, he once was a Pharisee. He knew what debating the scripture was all about. And God used that 
in, in the Apostle Paul to, to bring this truth to us and certainly to these Galatian believers. He uses six different arguments, three in chapter 3 and then three in chapter 4. Tonight we're probably just going to look at one of those arguments that he uses in verses 1 through 5. We're going to uh, not focus as much just on verse number 4 but the first five verses this evening and we'll get as far as we can. If we can get further, we will, but we'll probably just look at the first argument that he uses. The first argument he uses in chapters number 3, verses 1 through 5, is the personal argument. He gets very personal with these Galatian believers. And really what he's doing, he, he's asking them to take inventory of their personal relationship with Christ, how it happened, how they experienced Jesus, because he wants them to see it wasn't by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus that they've truly come to know their Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if they, we can see how he makes it clear to them, then it becomes ultimately clear to us because we came to Jesus the same way. How you know everybody that gets saved, if they truly get saved, comes to Jesus the same way? By grace, through faith. He makes that plain to them and he'll make it plain to us as we begin to look at it. So look, look what he tells them there in these first five verses. O foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Everybody say begun in the spirit. How did they start this thing? How did it really begin in their life? It wasn't through them keeping the law perfectly, but by the work of God the Holy Spirit doing what only God can do in their heart and in their life. That's the point he's making. That's what he's trying to get them to see. Let's go on. He said, this only I want to learn from you, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh, have you suffered so many things in vain? Or have you experienced, the word could be translated, so many things in vain? If you've experienced all of this, the work of the Spirit in your life, um, then, then have you done it in vain? Did it not mean anything to you? Why are you trying to go back to the works of the law? If indeed it was in vain, verse 5, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles, everybody say miracles. How do you believe we still serve a miracle-working God? We do. How do you know God has not changed? He hasn't got old and he hasn't got sick. He hasn't quit being who he promised to be on the pages of Scripture. He is still the same miracle-working God that we read about from Genesis to Revelation. And according to what Paul is saying to them, God the Father must have been working miracles among these Galatian believers. Amen. I love that. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That's a good question. How are these miracles taking place? Because you're being perfect in the law? Or because by faith you've been born again into the family and you become God's sons and daughters? That's what he's saying to them and to us. So let's look at the personal argument that he uses. First of all, really what he says is, you've seen God the Son through my preaching. Look at verse number one. He says, who's fooled you, who's bewitched you that you should obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ 
was clearly portrayed, watch this, among you as crucified. There's one point in Paul's ministry throughout his writings that he says, I didn't preach, I didn't come to you preaching anything save Christ and him crucified. Can you say amen to that? See, when Paul went to a place like when he came to Galatia and planted this church on his first missionary journey, when he came there, you know what he was preaching? He was preaching Jesus. He was preaching the gospel. You want me to tell you why he was preaching Jesus and he was preaching the gospel? Because the preaching of the gospel coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit is still what's changing hearts and changing lives. It worked then, and praise God, it still works right now today. How do I know it? Because it's worked in me. It's worked for me. The preaching of the gospel, coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, changes hearts, changes lives. And Paul said, that's what I preached to you when I came. You saw Jesus. He was portrayed before you through my preaching. So really what he's telling them is, as I preached Christ and him, cru him crucified, as I preached Jesus and his finished work at the cross, paying for the sin debt of all mankind. As I preach the truth that he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day. When I preach that and you believed by faith, then you were born again. You saw Jesus through my preaching. That's the argument he's making here. That's what he's telling them. Not only does he say, you saw God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through my preaching, he also tells them, not only did you see Jesus, but when you re received Jesus, you also received the Holy Spirit. Look there, verse number two. Look how he puts it, Galatians 3 and 2. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit? Everybody say, receive the Spirit. Receive the Spirit. He said, you have received God, the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you this. How many of you are thankful tonight you've received God the Holy Spirit? He is our comforter. He is our teacher. He is our guide in this world. Jesus said when he promised the Holy Spirit to his early disciples... He said, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. But it's better for you that I go away, for if I don't come, or if I don't leave, the comforter will not come. Now, the word comforter is the Greek word parakletos. Let me tell you what parakletos means. Parakletos means one like myself. So Jesus said, I'm going, but when I go, I'm sending one just like myself. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to give you a comforter. One just like me. So when I tell you as believers, God lives in you in the person of the Holy Spirit, that's what I mean because that's what God's word says. One just like Jesus, God the Holy Spirit is given to every believer. That's what he's saying. He said, and you didn't receive this spirit because you kept the law perfectly. Again, why can you not receive the spirit and truly be converted and be born again to the family of God by, by keeping the law? Why is that? Again, because we can't keep it. Brother Scotty said something 
two weeks ago, brother. I'm going to use it tonight. He said, I want you to use it. I don't want to mess it up. Tell me what you were saying about the law. That's good. Did, you, did everybody hear that? The law will never make you right, but it will always make you wrong. The law will never make you right because you can't keep the law perfectly, and that's what God requires. But it will always make you wrong because it will show you how sinful you are. That's a great point, and that's exactly what Paul is teaching them. You didn't receive the Spirit. You weren't born again. You weren't converted into the family of God by keeping the law, but by faith in Jesus. That's what happened as I preached Christ and Him crucified. He's asking them to take inventory of what happened to them personally, what they experienced personally. It's His personal argument. Real evidence of salvation, real evidence of conversion for anybody is the presence of God in a person's life by the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? That's what the scripture teaches. Romans chapter 8. Everybody flip over there with me. Romans chapter 8. Some of you remember this from our study of the book of Romans. Look down with me, if you will, please, to verse number 9. Romans chapter 8. Verse number 9, we'll start there. But you are not in the flesh, he says to these believers, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He says if, if there's not evidence of God the Holy Spirit living in you, working on you, working through you, if that's not happening in your life, then you are none of Christ. Everybody see it? So real evidence of true conversion, true salvation, is the work of the Spirit that's happening inside the believer. Now he says in verse 10, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit that dwells in you. So what he's saying is true evidence, true evidence of you being born again, saved, converted, is the work of the spirit in you. That's what makes all the difference. Amen? So if that's true, then we need to take a good long look at the work of the spirit according to the word of God. Not only do I want us to take inventory, not only does Paul want these Galatian believers to take inventory of their personal life, folks, we need to take inventory of our personal life. Where are we at with Jesus is the question we must ask ourselves. So let's look at the work of the Spirit in salvation. I want to give you about five or six things here that I want you to write down. I'm not going to, I may, we may not go to every scripture. Uh, we're going to go to some of them. But I want you to write them down and make sure you go back and look later if we don't look at them tonight. First of all, the Holy Spirit of God is the one who convicts the sinner of, of his sin or, or her sin. Do you know that? that? Now, you say, brother, where do you get that? I get it straight from the book of, uh, of John, the Word of God. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Brother, if you will, please put that on the screen for me. John 16, 
verse 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is the scripture I was quoting a moment ago. For if I do not go away, the helper or the comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Watch this now. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 9. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the rule of this world is going to be judged. Is judged. Now, what's he saying? It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the sinner of sin. And I've seen this firsthand. First of all, personally in my life, okay? And also as the Lord has allowed me to preach the gospel. There was a time when God the Holy Spirit gave me revelation as to how much I needed a Savior. I'm talking about when he convicted me to the point where I realized just how low down, sorry, and sinful I truly was. Now let me tell you something, folks. I've never been an axe murderer. I've never robbed any banks. I've never done what some might consider big sins. But all sin, all sin causes us to be under the condemnation of God who is holy. So the one who tells the little white lie is just as much a sinner as the one who does the axe murdering. Why? Because God is holy and perfect and righteous and must judge all sin. Do you got me? That's why we all, whether we're axe murderers or little white liars, that's why we all need a Savior. That's why we all need our sins forgiven. And I'm going to tell you something. It is a work of God the Holy Spirit that lets a person know that. I'm not sure you can come to that simply through your own intellect. I don't think you can. Because of sin, because of the fall of man and sin that has... Um, entered this world, I think our intellect is damaged to the point we can't realize just how holy God is. Are you getting that? We lost a lot in the fall. It takes a work of God the Holy Spirit to show you your sinfulness, to show you your need for a Savior. Now, I've experienced that in my own personal life, but I'm going to tell you, I've seen it as I've preached the gospel. Years ago, there was a gentleman at my church, not here, at another church I was pastoring. I'm telling you, I had, said, I had preached the gospel to this man over and over and over and over and over for about seven or eight years I was his pastor. And week after week, he was there faithfully. And then about seven, eight years into our ministry at the church there, we had a revival meeting. A revivalist came and preached. The Lord used him in a fantastic way. We talk about a strong move of the Spirit that night. And that brother who had been sitting on the pew, serving in the church, doing all the stuff he thought he was supposed to do to make himself right with God, that night came under conviction, came up and got saved. Now let me tell you something. 
As far as I knew, he was saved. He looked the part. He acted the part. And, and, and listen, again, I'd done everything I could possibly do by the power of God to preach the gospel to that man for seven or eight years, but it took a work of the Holy Spirit to reveal his need for a Savior. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. That's what the Scripture's telling us. Let me tell you something else the Holy Spirit does. When the sinner believes, when the sinner trusts by faith in Jesus, then we are born by the Spirit, of the Spirit, into the family of God. Now, let me tell you, we can take no credit for salvation. Let me tell you why. Because it's God who convicts us. And it's a supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit that puts us into the body by the new birth. You say, brother, how do you know that? Well, according to the word of God, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, you remember this scripture well. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. John 3, starting with verse number 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. One thing that's always blessed my heart about this scripture. Every time I read it, did Nicodemus ask Jesus anything about the kingdom of God? Not that I saw. All he said was, we know you are come from God because nobody's doing the stuff you're doing. Something's different about you, Jesus. I want to know what it is. Can't quite put my finger on it. Something's different about you. However, even though, even though Nicodemus didn't ask about the kingdom, Jesus knew what Nicodemus needed. Isn't that good? John 2.29 says that he knows the heart of all men. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. He knew the heart of Nicodemus. He knew what Nicodemus needed at the right time. And so he says to Nicodemus, buddy, if you really want to be a part of the kingdom of God, what you need to be is born again. If you really want to see it, he knew his need, he knew my need. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, watch. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Could he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless he is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So if we are born again, how are we born again? Of the spirit. Of the Spirit. First of all, he says you've got to be born of the water. Then you have to be born of the Spirit. You've got to have your first birth. Then you've got to have your second birth. Because you've got to remember the question Nicodemus asked. Oh, wait a minute, Lord. How am I who is... Well, let's go on and read it. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Verse 6. Watch what he says. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 3, 7. Do not marvel that I send to you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, and, but I cannot tell where it comes or from where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus says, well, Lord, how in the world can I be born again when I am old? How can I go back into my mother's womb? So Jesus clears it up for him. He says, well, Nicodemus, let me tell you, buddy, if you're going to be a, a part of the kingdom of God, first of all, you've got to be born of the water. 
Then you've got to be born of the Spirit. So what's it mean to be born of the water? That's the first birth. That's the physical birth. I remember 18 years ago, October the 29th, it'll be 18 years ago, um, Anna Kate was my first child born into my family. And we were going down for a checkup. Um, didn't, wasn't supposed to be having a baby that day. All we was going for was a checkup down at Winfield. We was having, Brandy was having the baby there. And we were on the way down there, and we got into those curves there in Gubin, and she starts screaming bloody murder in the passenger side of the car. And um, then I went through those curves probably a little faster than what I should have went through there. All of a sudden, the baby starts coming. I mean, she's on her way, you know. We get down past um, the old, uh, what's the place that had the good biscuits in Gewin? Not the Frosty Front, the other one. The Plaza Barbecue. Best biscuits in the state of Alabama. I'm talking about buttermilk biscuits as big as your head. Fantastic. I got one every time I went there. Loved them. Best biscuits in Alabama, I'm telling you. And I thought my mama's was the best. But them were great. Gene Webb was the owner. I love Brother Gene. He just went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago. Great guy. Him and Miss Linda. Anyway, we, we get right there past the Plaza Barbecue and um, her water breaks. And so then I really knew, she really knew, it was time to get to the hospital for in just a little while, guess what we had? A new baby girl. What is Jesus saying when he says you've got to be born of the water? You've got to have a physical birth. All of us have had that covered. Matter of fact, just take your hand, take your left hand, hold it up, and pinch yourself with your right hand. If you can do that, you've got the first birth covered. You've been born of the water. You've had your physical birth. Right? But then he says, if you really want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you've got to be born of the Spirit. You've got to be born of the Spirit. You've got to have that new birth. You must be born again. How do we receive the new birth? When we believe. That's why we get John 3.16. Aren't you thankful for John 3.16? That's what he tells Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How do you get the new birth and receive everlasting life? How are you born of the Spirit? By placing faith in Jesus. Amen? We are convicted by the Spirit, and we are born by the Spirit of the Spirit into God's family. Can I tell you this, though? Listen to me. You can reject the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You can. You certainly can. Acts 7.51. Paul preaching to a bunch of Jewish people that had heard the gospel but rejected the gospel said, you're just like your fathers. You've, you're stubborn and you're stiff-necked and you keep rejecting the truth. People can reject the truth. People can reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When Paul was preaching to King Agrippa, if you remember, King Agrippa stopped and said, Paul, you have almost persuaded me to become a Christian. I believe that brother was under conviction. I believe God was all over him. He said, you almost persuaded me, but he rejected and, uh, and chose to uh, not follow Christ. So the Holy Spirit convicts the sinner. We are born by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says that we are baptized when we are born of the Spirit by believing in Jesus. We are baptized, listen to me, into the body of Christ by the Spirit. Remember us talking about that a few weeks ago, how that we are all baptized. Every member is baptized by the same Spirit into one body. <laughs> there it is. 12, 12, 12, 13. 
So then you got, uh, not only are we baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, but we are also sealed by the Spirit. The Bible says in the day of redemption, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Brother, put that on the screen for me. Ephesians 1, 13. I love this verse. You should too. In him you, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Everybody see it? You trusted in the gospel which produced salvation. In whom also having believed you were sealed, watch this now, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Isn't that good? Sealed. Sealed. By the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit that lives within the believer becomes the seal of God upon you. That's huge. Back in the Middle Ages, even back in Paul's time, really through all throughout history, we can read historically about the king putting their seal on someone or on a specific document. Now, in Paul's day, if the Caesar got his signet ring and he dipped it in that hot wax and he put it upon a letter or it was put onto a person by various other means. Sometimes that happened. You know what that meant? If it had the king's, the emperor's seal on it, you better not mess with that letter. You better not be tampering with it. You better leave it alone. If the seal was on a person, you know what that meant? You better not mess with them. They were protected by the king himself. Now the scripture just told me that God the Holy Spirit puts the seal of God upon us. Verse 14, watch. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? The Holy Spirit is God's seal upon us in our lives. Satan knows he can only come so far against the believer. Only what he is allowed to do. Why? Because the king's seal is on us. Amen? I love that. But we are also kept by the Holy Spirit. Until the day of redemption. A lot of people say, brothers, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Absolutely. Let me tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit seals you. You are God's forevermore. Why? Because you've been born again into his family. You've been born of the Spirit. God is not an Indian giver. He don't give you something and take it back. Are you hearing me? Philippians 1.6 tells us, I quoted a moment ago, He that hath begun the good work in you will perform it under the day of redemption. What's the day of redemption? The day of redemption is when we are finally, wholly, 
perfectly redeemed in the presence of Jesus. When we have our new home and our new body, God seals his people. How? By the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? I love that. We are convicted by the Holy Spirit. We are uh, born of the Spirit when we place faith in Jesus. We are baptized by the Spirit into the body. We are sealed by the Spirit under the day of redemption. The Bible calls us in Galatians 5, 16 and 25. I'm not going to turn there, but we'll get there soon enough. We're called to walk in the Spirit. That means every day we're to make it our purpose to walk, live our life pleasing the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We shouldn't grieve the Spirit. Now, how do you, let me tell you how you grieve the Spirit. By disobeying Him. Do you ever feel that nudge of the Holy Spirit? You know what I'm talking about? You ever feel that sometimes? When God leads you to do certain things? When you feel that nudge of the Holy Spirit to pray with someone, to encourage someone, to help someone, to show someone the love of Jesus, when you feel God the Holy Spirit nudging you to teach the Sunday school class, get involved in worship, serve in the church, sweep the floor, Take out the garbage. I'm telling you, God the Holy Spirit will nudge you along and lead you throughout your life. He is your guide. He is your comforter. When you choose, when you choose to follow those promptings of the Holy Spirit, man, you're talking about an exciting adventure that God will take you on day by day. When you finally relinquish your will and say, okay, God, today is yours. Whatever you want to do, that's what I want to do. It'll be amazing that the door's got to open up as you follow those promptings. But when you choose to disobey those promptings, you ever done that? I have. God ever, God, there have been times in my life when God has opened the door for me to share the gospel, share the truth of the, uh, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with someone. And uh, there have been times that I've, I've um, obeyed God and and went with those promptings and shared my faith. And it's been amazing how God would use that and work in that. But then there's been other times when I would feel that prompting, but for many different reasons. Sometimes just because I'm flat out ashamed. I mean, let's call it what it is. That's what it is. You're afraid of what somebody else is going to say if you tell them about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when God the Holy Spirit nudges you along. You ever been there? Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever just blown it and said, you know what, I, I just didn't do it because I knew what they would say and I knew how they would feel about it and I knew that they would look at me differently and treat me differently if I stood for the Lord in that moment. Some of the guys that, that I'm around from time to time wouldn't take kindly to that. They're not going to hear it. You understand what I'm saying? Kind of rough. You know, and I know that. And if we're not careful, we'll cower down because we don't want them to think bad of us. Now, when we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit because we've disobeyed Him when He's prompted us. And the Bible says we can continually grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4 and 30. And when we grieve the Spirit over and over and over again, guess what happens? We quench the Spirit. We quench the Spirit. We strangle Him from the work He's trying to do in our life. And then guess what happens? We become numb to the things of God. You ever been there? 
Whenever you feel none of the things of God, get on your face and repent right then. Don't wait. Wherever you're at, stop. Say, Lord, I, I, I'm not experiencing you. I'm not uh, feeling your, you, you leading me, guiding me. I'm not, I'm not feeling your presence like I want. I want you to be so real to me right now, God. I've got to get the sin out of my life. Do that. Just tell him the truth. When you begin getting numb, because that's what will happen when the Holy Spirit is quenched in your life, when it's quenched in your ministry, when it's quenched in your church. Let me tell you something else. The Bible also calls us to be filled with the Spirit. Everybody, everybody believe that? says that we shouldn't be filled with wine, we're in his excess, but we should be filled with God, the Holy Spirit. What happens, that's Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, if you want to look that up. But in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, he gives us the word picture of being drunk with wine or filled with the Spirit. What's it mean to be drunk with wine? When you're drunk with wine, you are controlled by that substance. A few years ago, I went to an Alabama football game, many years ago now. I'm sitting down there at the Alabama football game. This dude comes walking up to our section, and I was hoping and praying the whole time he wasn't going to sit down. I'm just going to be honest. Because the whole time he was walking, he had, he had one of these straw hats on that come up at, at a point right up here and come straight down like this, right? And I could tell by the way he was walking up those steps that he, had, he was already being controlled, if you know what I'm talking about. And so he comes and sits right in front of me. And I, I spoke to him and said, hey, buddy, how you doing? He's, he's like, man, he was talking about the football game and he couldn't believe he was there. And he was so excited about what Alabama was going to do. And, and I really, I really liked the dude, man. We sat there and talked for the whole first quarter and he was fired up. And he was the cheerleader in the, in the whole bunch. But I began noticing every time he would do a cheer, he would sit down and take something out of his back pocket and pour in his drink. I kept seeing that. And before long, he was really doing some cheerleading. I can tell he was getting more and more controlled, if you understand what I'm talking about. And by the third quarter, he didn't care whether the game was won, lost, what happened. He was asleep in the seat in front of me. But in that, I think that's exactly the picture Paul is painting. He said, don't be drunk with wine. That's excess. That don't mean a whole lot. Don't be controlled by that substance, but be controlled by God the Holy Spirit so that you speak the words he wants you to speak. And he leads you in the direction you need to go. And you love like Jesus and serve like Jesus and make a difference and the people's lives around you. Amen? Be filled with the Spirit, brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell you something. I believe that's a continual thing that happens throughout your life. I don't think that's a one-time thing. Being baptized by the Spirit, that's a one-time thing. But being filled can happen and should happen continually. You've seen God the Son. You've been received God the Holy Spirit. And then he says... You've experienced miracles that come from God the Father. The he that's being spoken of in verse number 5 is capitalized for a reason. He's the one. God the Father who supplies the Spirit by faith of believers. And it's through faith that these people receive the Spirit. Thereby, the miracles taking place in their presence. That's what he's saying. You've seen Jesus. You've received the Spirit. God the Father's at work in your midst. Quit trying to go back to the old way of doing things under the law. Remember, you've been set free, you've been saved, you've been converted, you've been born again. 
by faith in Jesus and because of the work of God the Holy Spirit. If you believe it, say amen tonight. I love you. I love you. Have a great week. Go out this week, tomorrow, and um, tell somebody how good Jesus is. Follow those promptings of God the Holy Spirit. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. I believe with all my heart, with everything in me, that God gives us divine opportunities every day if we don't miss it. He puts people in our path every day that we can love on, that we can share the love of Christ with, with our lips, with our lives. People that we can encourage, people we can pray for. Ask that God does that for you tomorrow, that he opens those doors. Be ready, because he will. I'm telling you, he'll do it. I've got just one prayer request tonight. Please remember. I don't have my phone. I can't remember the young man's name. The Lord knows his name. It's uh, Kathy and Ronnie Posey's grandson, Jamie Posey's little boy. I think his name is Braden. I believe that's right. I think that's what she told me. Anyway, he was born with a heart defect and is having some, a really tough time. And she asked, she messaged us tonight and asked that we would pray for him. He's going to the cardiologist tomorrow and they're going to try and lengthen the arteries to his heart. I think his heart is enlarged twice its normal size and he's just not doing well. A little bitty fuller, he's, I don't know, seven, eight years old maybe. And so... Um, Pray for that grandma and that mom and daddy. Can't imagine what they're feeling tonight. Anything else?